Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jefferies, and this is Bookin' brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Annette Sanuk Clapsaddle. She is the winner of the Morning Star Award for Creative Writing from the Native American Literature Symposium and a finalist for the Penn Bellwether Prize for Socially Engaged Fiction. Her latest novel is Even As We Breathe, which is published by Fireside Industries, an imprint of the University Press of Kentucky. Annette, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here. And Annette, before we dive into your book, I want to ask you how you have been doing during this time under COVID-19 and specifically, how have you perceived the challenges of marketing a new book during this time? Sure. Well, um, I've been holding it together during (laughs) COVID-19. like I think most of us are all trying to do. I'm a public high school teacher, so that's had some unique challenges. Um, it's definitely been the hardest year I've ever had teaching, and I've taught for over 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I teach, currently we're teaching uh, in person uh, in, in a hybrid sort of situation. So I have extra small class sizes and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, it also happened to be the year that I launched my debut novel. So um, it's been interesting for me because I don't have anything to compare it to with a book launch. Um, I've found some, you know, silver linings in the situation in that I'm able to talk with more folks from different places so normally especially because i'm with a smaller press i wouldn't be traveling around the country on a you know a big national book tour international book tour um but because bookstores are going and conferences are going virtual then i'm able to um, do those virtual events for those stores or those conferences all across the country um, this year so that that's been uh, a welcome um, advantage i guess um, when there's a lot of disadvantages you know it was disappointing not to have the big party launch that you dream of for your debut novel. Um, But, you know, I think people have been really creative and um, we've just found new ways as authors to work together Um, a lot. I feel like there, and again, I'm new to this game, but I get the sense that a lot of authors um, are working together more than maybe in the past and doing events together and promotions together um, and finding ways to help each other out. And also um, independent bookstores, you know, whatever we can do, because the, you know, the, the bookstores are the ones that are, that are suffering from not having those in-person events and things like that the most, I think. Right. Yeah. And um, there have been a lot of virtual events out there. I know you did a conversation with Therese Ann Fowler for the North Carolina Writers Network. It probably is a silver lining that you don't have anything to compare it to because uh, this is all, you know, the new normal, right? Um, (laughs) So very good. Thank you. And uh, the prologue of your novel starts with three words about the place. Can you talk about the importance of place in this novel, even as we breathe? 
Sure. Even As We Breathe has two main settings. Um, one is in Asheville, North Carolina at the Grove Park Inn, which is um, a, a resort for the upper class um, and has been since its inception and even today in 2020. Um, you know, a, a place where, for example, the Obamas will vacation, to give you a sense, if you're not familiar with the Grove Park. Um, so that's one, one part of the saying. The other part is in Cherokee, North Carolina, where I'm from, the Kuala Boundary, um, and that's the, the seat of government for the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. So both places are not very far apart geographically. Today, it would take me an hour to get to Asheville, for example. Mm. Um, but in the heart of the Great Smoky Mountains, um, we are in Cherokee, we're in a very rural area. And so in 1942, when the book is set, um, it was in a very, very rural, isolated area. And um, place is important to the novel um, because there is um, an emphasis on on who we are as human beings and how we decide who belongs in place and who belongs in community. And so I look at place on a few different levels. Um, one in the sense that the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians um, can trace our existence as the people back to this place uh, and it's um, embedded the sense of place and um, appreciation for place is embedded in our culture, even today in 2020. Um, so, so that's very imp important in the novel and I hope comes through in the novel. And then also to kind of juxtapose that with what's going on in, at the Grove Park in 1942 when Axis diplomats and foreign nationals were held as prisoners of war um, <clears throat> during that summer. Um, so, you know, kind of a question of um, these artificial um, prisons that, that, that we uh, develop when the need arises. So I play with, you know, just different kind of frames of place throughout the novel. Thank you so much, Annette. Along these same lines, uh, I also want to talk about the quote at the beginning of section one of your novel by Tom Belt of the Cherokee Nation, which references place. And the quote reads, that's the thing about ceremony. It must have three things. It must be for the right reason, at the right time, and must be in the right place. And now, why are these three factors important to ceremony? And why did you choose this quote to lead into section one of your novel? Yeah, um, I appreciate that. Sometimes people don't ask me questions about um, epigraphs or you know or anything like that um so tom belt is is a personal friend but he um he is a member of the cherokee nation of oklahoma but has lived um, in our community for the eastern band for decades he's married to a, a enrolled member of our tribe and has children um that are eastern band but he's um he's an academic and a historian um and just really a keeper of traditional cherokee uh, knowledge and the funny part about this quote is that um, the way I came to it, Tom and I were walking into a coffee shop. And I really, to be honest with you, have no idea what we were talking about. But 
this is the way Tom is. He always speaks in these quotable lines. Mm -hmm. He opens the door to the coffee shop as we're about to walk in and he says these lines and I just stopped in, in my place and I, you know, just taken aback because I was in the middle of writing this novel and um, it occurred to me that everything is about ceremony. So we think about ceremony um, in a religious sense a lot of times, um, but everything we do in life is really some form of ceremony. And um, we, um, I think that most likely we were having a conversation about how oftentimes people believe that they can read a book and find out, for example, that a certain plant will treat a certain ailment. Um, and maybe this is some kind of Cherokee knowledge, for example. But the truth of it is you can't just take the plant and make medicine, that there are other elements involved in, in that process. You, you know, you need to know, um, you need to know the the ceremony itself behind it, for example, or when when that plant is ready to be used for medicine, you know, all kinds of things like that. Then that's just one example. And so it really struck me that, um, you know, we live in a world where we want a quick fix. We want to label things quickly and and simply, but really everything is connected. Um, we are connected to the place and, and um, all of the living things associated with that place. And so um, the ceremonies of our life have to take that into account. And Tom, as he often does, was able to sum that up in one line. And then I tried to write a whole novel <laughs> around it, I guess. <laughs> right, and you did. Thank you so much, Annette. Um, this novel begins with the character County Sequoia, the protagonist of this novel, and County's working for his uncle Bud. Uh, County and his uncle Bud have an antagonistic relationship here at the beginning. Uh, can you talk to us about the dynamic between these two characters and why that dynamic exists? Sure. So um, Bud is a character that when I was writing him, he really evolved throughout the novel um, because early on, um, he is semi helping to raise County. County is 19. Um, his mother died in childbirth. His father, who is Bud's brother, um, died at the tail end of World War One. Really, World War One is technically over um, on paper. Um, but there's a little bit of mystery surrounding the death of County's father and what happened in Europe. Um, Bud and his father were over there together. And so Bud, or excuse me, County is orphaned in a sense um, after that event, but is raised by his grandmother, Lishi, who is um, Bud and County's father's mother. Um, and then Bud lives in a different uh, cabin, but County will go do some work for him. Um, and they have a very strained relationship. Um, Bud served in the military and County has um, a foot deformity that, that precludes him from serving in the military. And, you know, Bud in a sense uh, insinuates that County is lazy and kind of worthless. But um, I think, you know, as a novel, 
um, continues to evolve, we see that that Bud is motivated by some other things and um, may have more of county's well-being in mind than, than we might originally think. Um, but Bud is a, definitely an imperfect character. He's trying to make ends meet. Um, and he has some, um, some, I don't want to give anything away. He has some issues, um, that, that cause him to do some things that really strain the relationship between, um, County and him. And in fact, you know, one of the jobs he gives County to do before County leaves for Asheville to work for the summer almost gets County killed. So, um, Bud, in a sense, is a real motivation for County to leave home and try to find other options. Great. Thank you so much, Annette. Uh, speaking of Lee Shi, uh, I have a question about this character before we take a short break. Um, and that question is in regards to James Joyce's Ulysses. Uh, the character Lee Shi finds a copy of, Ulyse of Ulysses in County's things and confiscates it as she has labeled James Joyce the Devil's Whisperer. Uh, she then proceeds, according to County, to read a quarter of Ulysses overnight. First, Annette, why was Joyce the Devil's Whisperer in Lishi's eyes, and how was Lishi able to read a quarter of the novel overnight, an act that surely takes her through Stephen Dalis's Stream of Consciousness chapter into the Leopold Bloom <laughs> section? <laughs> that that's very specific. <laughs> um, so I I love Lishi for a lot of reasons, and I wanted um, to subtly hint at her complexity. Right, um, I know uh, characters like Lishi. These women who you know you'll read in the novel that Lishi will go to church and she will she will uphold. Um, the perception and do the things that make her an upstanding woman of the community, um, which means publicly ridiculing certain um, literature like Ulysses um, that um, that might that some might say um, contain. I don't know the best way to say this anti-Christian ideas about about things. Um, but secretly, Li Shi loves to read and um, is intellectual and, um, and, and, and almost sneaks that intellectualism into her life. And so um, I don't know how she read that much in one night, but um, I like to think that she did. Um, and that, that, you know, I wanted to show that um, it was that important to her. It wasn't just like a curiosity for the day that, you know, well, what, what is this kid reading? And let me just check into it. But that she actually really wanted to read it more than, than, than him. Thank you so much, Annette. Listeners, we're going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor. And then I will be right back with Annette Sanuk Clapsaddle. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. 
Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Annette Snoot Clapsaddle, author of Even As We Breathe, which is published by Fireside Industries, an imprint of the University Press of Kentucky. Annette, I'm curious about the character, and forgive me if I'm butchering the pronunciation of Satsi, who has a monkey named yeah, who has a monkey named Edgar, uh, a monkey who was purportedly named after Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, was this character a work of your imagination or based on someone real? Okay, so Zadzi is the um, older gentleman that, um, you know, I always hesitate to say owns the capuchin monkey named Edgar because he doesn't really own him, but Edgar is tied to him, I guess. Um, Zadzi is not a um, real life character in the sense that um, I know him exactly but he is a um, composite of, you know, I think s- several elder men, you know, that I know that they seem to just appear, you know, all of a sudden they're there and they just always are kind of um, giving you a little bit of knowledge here and there very casually. It's uh, not people who are trying to lecture um when when they they give you these kind of nuggets of knowledge um so i feel like i know people like zodzi um surprisingly edgar israel not um not in the sense that his name was necessarily edgar or even that he was a capuchin monkey um but there is a story about a monkey that used to roam free in the smoky mountains um that did belong to somebody, but used to scare hunters in the woods and all kinds of things. Um, Gary Carden, who is a storyteller from Silva, North Carolina, from Jackson County, North Carolina, um, he has told this story before about this monkey. And I, you know, I read it a, a long time ago and found it just, first of all, charming, <laughs> but um, also really interesting uh, in the when I added it into the novel in the context of thinking about um, our relationship to all living beings because I wanted to um, pair this kind of scientific relationship that we accept that we are scientifically most related to primates, right? Biologically speaking. Um, I wanted to pair that with the Cherokee cultural knowledge um, that we are most closely related to bears. And so there are a couple of bears in the book. Um, And how, you know, sometimes people assume that Native Americans have this weird spiritual connection to the earth that no one else has. But the truth of the matter is we just think about it in different ways. Um, You know, we accept um, in uh, a more, um, what's the word I'm trying to think of, in a popular culture that, that were closely related to primates. But then on the other hand, 
Um, people are fascinated to to know that the Cherokees feel somewhat akin to bears, right? But it's the same thing. It's just you know a different way of of reaching those conclusions. So I wanted to have those those um, two animals present just to say that there's no magic here. This is just how the world operates. This is how we function within you know our environment or can function within our environment so it was um i was fortunate that the story of the monkey actually did exist i don't think i would put a monkey in a book um in, in this setting if it hadn't been real you know that would have been way too far-fetched <laughs> <laughs> absolutely and that's why i asked thank you so much annette um i want to talk about county's decision to leave his home in the work that he is doing with his uncle bud to to go to work at the Grove Park Inn in Asheville, North Carolina, County thinks, my father had not died for his country, merely to have his son die for someone else's pocket change. I'm hoping, Annette, that you can talk about this thought of counties and then maybe move beyond the boundaries of your novel and espouse on why you think more people, young people or otherwise, don't have such thoughts. Yeah. Um, well, you know, part of this quote is about um, the service uh, of County's father. And so, um, you know, one of the, the, um, the pieces of history that, that I had certainly on my mind when I was writing this was, is that uh, Native Americans serve in the U.S. military at higher rates than any other group uh, you know, by population size. So um, even, even when um, Native Americans were not experiencing full rights of citizenship, such as voting in some states and things like that, they're still serving in the U.S. military. So there's this long history of um, of Native Americans serving their serving I about said their country, but just serving the United States, um, and so um, county for me, um, it was important that he had a sense of wanting to um, to make his ancestors proud this in this case being his father right um recognizing their sacrifices um in a way that he felt like as a young man he wasn't able to do where he was he wasn't able to serve in the military um like a lot of his cousins were at the time um and he knew that if he continued to stay and work for bud that's just following a scene where he almost but almost got him killed um that that he would just kind of be spinning in circles and so um you know it really served as a motivation for him to go into a new space to experience things he'd never experienced before and see if there was a place for him you know was his place really somewhere away from home and that, that that's what pushed him to leave and then the second part of your question can you ask that again yeah um i'm just asking why you think more uh people 
don't have such thoughts or maybe you think they do i'm just wondering you know the thought of um someone not willing to work for someone else's pocket change oh, and right. do you think that that's as prevalent now in 2020 as it may have been in post uh the post-war world right mm-hmm. um you know i don't know that i think that's a really good question um if you know what motivates people and um you know, to to seek out other opportunities and and um whether or not they feel like they owe family for example um you know i teach high school so um my experience with high school students is that they're all ready to leave the <laughs> where they're from and then they, they'll they'll come back a lot of times, um, but not in terms of like, oh, they failed outside of the community in return, because that I don't think is the message. It's not the, really the message of the book in the end. Um, but I, you know, it's been interesting because I, I, I think that more and more people expect greater things than ever before. Um, and and I go back and forth on whether that's rational or irrational. Or, for example, um, my oldest son uh, keeps saying he wants to go work for specialized bikes in California and make a million dollars. I'm like, well, that's great, but you're going to have to take math first, <laughs> you know. Um, and so I'm kind of more of the old school. You can't make a million dollars, as you know like that but maybe i'm wrong i mean things change generations change and um, why not have those expectations for greater things uh, as long as you're willing to work for them and just because people have big grandiose dreams doesn't mean that they're not going to put in the work to get there so i don't know if that answered your question or not um i don't know if all of society believes the same (laughs) oh no yeah absolutely that did answer my question thank you so much for that annette um there's a section in this novel where you transition uh from rumors of prisoners or guests and a classic example of american doublespeak uh being kept in the grove park in in Asheville to the japanese internment camps uh in california um can you talk about the portrayal in the novel of the way that these camps in California were covered in the press? Yeah, there's an excerpt, and I believe that it is, um, if I remember correctly, I didn't change it much, if at all, that um, I found an article from 1942 that was talking about um, women who had employed um japanese women in their home to do domestic types of work and they were um lamenting the internment camps but not for the reason we would think they're (laughs) they're um, opposed to these internment camps they're lamenting the fact that they've lost their workers they've lost um the the people who keep their house tidy and that's what they were really worried about and that was um i am 99 percent sure that that was an article I pulled directly. I don't think I even edited um, that out. And, and I was kind of shocked to see that, shocked and not shocked um, to see that, but it, it really spoke to 
um, whose freedoms we value and when we value them and, and how um, sometimes we only value them if they serve our needs um, selfishly. So um, <clears throat> that is included in the novel. And the other comment uh, you know, I definitely wanted to make about internment camps in the United States is that one of the, the reasons why this uh, narrative came together for me is the knowledge that um, some Japanese internment camps were set up on Indian reservations out west. And I've always found that, you know, one of those great ironies of American history, um, that this land um, that was set aside for Native people literally became a prison, um, even though it was always metaphorically one. Right. Um, and Annette, my wife mentioned an alarming statistic to me the other day that a majority of young people in America have never heard of Auschwitz. Um, do you think many people in America at this moment in 2020 even realize that there were uh, Japanese prison camps in the United States of America? I would say, I hate to, you know, spout mm. statistics, but... I would not be shocked to hear that a majority, especially, you know, of a younger generation are not familiar with Japanese internment camps. Um, I, I I would not be surprised if I, you know, if I had a student walk in, to, I, actually we have really good teachers here. So if, <laughs> if, I, if I were maybe somewhere else, but um, you know, but if a high school age student walked up and said, oh, I didn't know that there, there were Japanese internment camps. That wouldn't surprise me at all. Um, I think a lot of people don't know that history. Right. Um, I, I think you're right. And thank you. I want to circle back around um, to something that you said in the previous part of this question, connecting the grounds that the internment camps were on to um, to Native American grounds in a loose way. Uh, there occurs a scene in which county reads or hears about the atrocities and brutalities occurring in Poland and makes the connection to the atrocities and brutalities that were performed upon his people. Uh, can you talk about this connection in the novel and this connection of counties? Sure, yeah. Um, this is kind of a motif throughout the novel because Zadzi also talks about this um, when he's telling kind of the history of, of Edgar being um, in a cage. But um, so for listeners who aren't familiar, because uh, there are a lot of folks who aren't familiar with this history, um, in 1830s, there's the Indian Removal Act um, that forcibly removed Native Americans from um, the eastern part of the United States uh, to, to what was called Indian Territory or what's present day Oklahoma. And this was a few tribes were involved in this. Um, and so for the Cherokee, this is why we have now three separate federally recognized Cherokee tribes. The Eastern Band, um, where I am, uh, I'm a member of the Eastern Band, we are the um, portion of the, the original Cherokee Nation that um, avoided removal either by hiding out in the mountains, um, brokering land exchanges and, and uh, whatnot, or going to Oklahoma on the removes, one of the removes, and then coming back to the Eastern Band. Um, and so we've basically bought our land a few times over. Um, but um, in, in the book, 
it is this comparison, the, the, the um, section that you're talking about is a comparison to, um, you know, people in a different part of the world who had every right to live their lives and be on that land and be, be citizens. Um, but because one political being found it advantageous for them to eradicate a people, um, it became public policy. And the same thing happened in the United States. Um, it, it was an attempt, um, regardless of, of how it might have been communicated, um, it was an attempt at genocide of Native people. Um, and even some of the, the, um, the language of, um, um, of government documents talks about kind of the, um, the extinction of Native people, the, the assumed future extinction of Native people. Um, partly through assimilation process. So um, I think that Native people have a lot in common with um, those groups of people who um, were, were devastated and targeted by the Holocaust um, in Europe. <clears throat> and then later on, um, um, Zadi talks about, um, he has this oral history in his family of relatives who were rounded up and put in stockades. And that's kind of why he feels for, for Edgar, who was in a cage at the time. Um, and, you know, and that's what happened to the Cherokee people. They were rounded up and put in stockades. Some people never even made it out of the stockades alive to, to go on what we call the Trail of Tears. Right. Thank you so much for that information, Annette. Um, I want to circle back around to Asheville now. You describe Asheville in your novel as a jazz city that breathes blue notes. Uh, what does this mean? Um, if you've been to Asheville, you'll see uh, the Art Deco of the city. Um, you know, it has a strong literary history of, of course, Thomas Wolfe, but also um, um, Fitzgerald's wife, I just lost her name in my head. Zelda. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Also of uh, Zelda, Fitzgerald spent a lot of time um, in Asheville. Um, and, and it, it, you know, of course is that, that one um, major city in the far West. Um, and so, you know, all the ele elements of um, old American culture, if that makes sense, right? Um, what, what we love about the jazz age of America, that's captured in Asheville, unlike anywhere else in Western North Carolina, because it's the only, you know, major city that, that we have uh, in the far West. And, um, and in the 40s, you know, it's a time where, you know, leading into, of course, the war, it's still a time of um, artistic culture and, and music and um, arts. And then, you know, uh, there's a history of Black Mountain College, which is uh, nearby that is um, a, a really unique um, artist center. Um, and some really um, interesting characters have come out of Black Mountain College. So, um, 
it was completely unlike Cherokee, you know, um, just from different social classes, but also access to different um, mainstream American art forms. Absolutely. Thank you, Annette. And finally, I would like to ask you to talk about SC Stamper and Room 447 in the Grove Park Inn as a way of propelling our listeners from the end of this podcast to www.quailridgebooks.com to purchase a copy of Even As We Breathe and have it shipped to them for free, along with anything else they would like to order. Uh, what is going on with County SE in this room in the Grove Park Inn? Uh, thank you. Thank you for that question. This is um, an important aspect of the book for me. First of all, with Essie, Essie is a young woman who travels with the county from Cherokee to work at the Grove Park that summer. And they, they knew of each other in Cherokee, but were not um, well acquainted until they got to the Grove Park. And so now you have these two characters, young people from um, a totally different community are now in the midst of this situation at the Grove Park um, and all of its tensions um, and all of its unfamiliarity. And uh, County has a bit of a crush on Essie. Essie is beautiful and smart um, and um, convinces County uh, to check out this room, 447. Um, 447 for them becomes a place where they create their own culture, where they take all the elements of culture that, that we appreciate, like, and, and you'll notice in the book, there are references to literature, games, music, dance, art, all of those things that make up a culture are actually present in 447, but it's a mix of what, um, what is becomes important to both county and Essie. So it's a little bit Cherokee, it's a little bit Asheville, it's a little bit all of that mixed together. And so I wanted that room to be a culture in and of itself. And then what happens to that room throughout the novel or what happens in that room is a commentary on what happens to cultures. Um, and I don't want to say too much about that, um, but um, that that is a really, um, important feature of the novel. And the other thing I'll say about Essie is that readers either love Essie or hate Essie, and that's just fine by me either way. <laughs> but um, she is a character that elicits emotion from readers most often, I think. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Annette, and thank you for writing this wonderful book. Listeners, I've been speaking with Annette Sanuk Clapsaddle, author of Even As We Breathe, which is published by Fireside Industries, an imprint of the University Press of Kentucky. Annette, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Once again, I would like to thank Annette Sanuk Clapsaddle for joining me. Copies of Even As We Breathe can be purchased from www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jefferies and this has been Bookin'.